0: Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post-Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree that they overplayed their hand. I don't think they Anticipated how their extremism was going to uh, result in this kind of mass awakening of much of the population. Of course, we have a long way to go, but there's certainly reason for optimism, uh, just in terms of you know just public opinion polls showing uh, you know decrease you know there's much more uh, much greater p- proportion of the population now uh, opposes mandatory vaccinations.
0: That was Jeremy R. Hammond an author and truth seeker that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. calls a brilliant and accomplished journalist. He is also someone I've known online since the mid-2000s. Jeremy and I just had our first ever in-person conversation, and you'll get to hear it right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC, and as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance, and asking you, no matter what, to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. I started a blog called Cool Observer in 2004. It became pretty popular, but when I look back, what I'm most proud of is the collection of dedicated, regular, common commenters that this blog attracted. And among that group was Jeremy R. Hammond, who is now an author, journalist, and one of the most important voices in the struggle to end both scientific fraud and medical tyranny. And I'm thrilled to talk with him today. Jeremy, welcome to PostWoke and our first ever in-person conversation.
1: Hey, thanks, Mickey, for having me on. This is a great honor and it's just so great to reconnect with you. I've got a copy of The Seven Deadly Spins here by (laughs) Mickey Z in my hand. Listen to this. Jeremy, thanks for your support, for uh, uh, for bringing your sense of humor to my blog and for your dedication to justice in the struggle, Mickey Z. April twenty third two thousand six. How about that? Wow! I love this. I love this. I have got this uh, this treasure here, the signed book that you sent me.
0: Oh, now I'm the one who's honored that you that you <laughs> saved it and you, and you just shared that. And yeah, you know, I when I look back at my books, some of them. I just say, oh, that was a time and place thing. And my mindset has shifted and I no longer vibe with it. But um, Seven Deadly Spins is a book that I stand by. And I'll still on my substack excerpt parts of it because it is technically out of print. So it's like, I can't recommend to people, hey, buy this. But if someone's talking about um, war propaganda, like like this past year, particularly related to Ukraine, I may pluck out a chapter from there and and share it. So uh, thank you for for still still caring and still having that book all these years later. It's it's, it's <laughs> like you said, it's great to reconnect.
1: It's a it's a good book. Yeah, I, sh- I certainly would recommend it to people if they can find a copy.
0: And all right, so now my blog when it was out and my writing at that time was pretty much um, universally categorized as left, leftist, radical leftist, anarchist, a bunch of different terms, but nobody would call it right wing. But here in 2023, because I challenged the pandemic narrative and a few other issues that I'm on, people on the left now call me a right winger out of people on the right don't know what to make of me and so i'm wondering have you encountered that do you categorize yourself as any label anymore but what's it been like as sort of you're jeremy and you're doing your thing that you do but maybe the landscape shifted around us more than we shifted i don't know what do you think
1: well, my my positions have definitely shifted, um, but you know, I've never really identified as left or right. I think I used to have more kind of liberal leftist views on, on economics, and now I've kind of come around to to favoring free markets. Um, but yeah, no, I had the exact same experience back when I was you know focused really all, all on foreign policy issues. Um, my audience was largely, I think, left. Um, and and people assumed I was a leftist. You know, people would would criticize me and and you know and call me a leftist. And I never really identified as being a leftist or anything. Um, so that was unusual. I mean, I criticized whoever was in in, in office, whether it was Democrat or Republican. Um, no matter who was the president, my criticisms of foreign policy pretty much remained the same. Um, but yeah, it was always assumed that I was some kind of leftist for criticizing foreign policies. But then. When I shifted and started focusing on more domestic policies, and particularly uh, public vaccine policy, suddenly I'm a right winger, you know. (laughs) Or if I'm um, criticizing economic policies, suddenly I'm a right winger. Um, So yeah, that this assumption that we have to fall into one of these two different categories, and there's this narrow linear uh, spectrum between left and right, and in and and for people like me, probably you as well if you don't fall along that narrow linear spectrum, you're just off the map and it's like, you can't even comprehend there there being some kind of alternative perspective. Um, So it's uh, yeah. I experienced that exact same thing where people make assumptions about, you know, where I stand uh, politically. And, and uh, yeah, I I really, I don't, I don't align with left or right. I'm really something else entirely. And um, there's, there's no, there's no place for that in, in the mainstream narrative
0: well I think you're creating the space for it though i I'm give you, to give yourself more credit I mean I, I look at sort of what you do or what I do as like we're almost like free agents where where it's it's where we don't we don't have this need this psychological need to be part of a large group think, but we recognize that either side or and I shouldn't even say either side because there's so many there's such a multiplicity of possible opinions out there every you can pick up really valuable ideas and mindsets from anybody but i I hear you perfectly and You gave me the the great segue here because what I wanted to talk about was how you moved from being a a foreign, like you said, focusing on foreign policy to exposing medical and scientific fraud and specifically the lies and deceptions swirling around the big business of vaccines. So can you tell us what led you to make this switch and how did you become so well-versed in vaccines and medical issues so quickly?
1: Well, it was, uh, you know, really the, the big impetus was the, the birth of my son. My son was born in 2012. And, of course, uh, you know, while my wife was pregnant, I began researching. I wanted, I, you know, I knew we were going to have to make decisions about vaccinations. <clears throat> um, and so I just started with the first one on the CDC schedule, the hepatitis B vaccine. And I just um, I started going into the me- medical literature, like going to PubMed.gov, which is a, a government run um, Database of, of the published literature, and you can often read articles there. They're not you know for free; they're not behind a paywall. A lot of them, um, and so I just went straight to the source and just started researching the medical literature. Which you know I had I had by that time developed you know a lot of good research skills doing journalism, and I just applied my research skills to you know making informed choices about vaccinations for our for our son, um, and I. I was always skeptical about vaccines. I would say just kind of inherently and naturally, even ever since I was a kid, I didn't really understand. Same. <laughs> um, um, you know, I just, I was skeptical. I was like, well, what's wrong with me just getting the virus and developing immunity that way. Um, that was kind of my, <laughs> 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 even as a child, my innocent question that I was asking. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I expected to find a, a disparity between, you know, what we're told the science says and what the science says, but uh, I, I was not prepared for the chasm and absolute um, you know, they're polar opposites of each other essentially, Um, you know, so that what, what the government and the media say, the science says and what the science actually says are two completely different, irreconcilable things. Um, And it was a few years from the time I really started digging into it very deeply and researching heavily. The time I actually started writing about it was, it was probably two or three years, I think um, because I, you know, it, it took me to build up the level of knowledge where I actually had the the confidence to be able to speak out on such a controversial topic, knowing what a target it would place on my back in terms of the personal attacks and the name calling I, w- I would face for doing that, for criticizing um, CDC policy and other, other public vaccine policies. Um, you, you know, I, I, I really had to d- develop a certain level of knowledge before I felt comfortable doing that. Um, but the thing is, is I, and I never had any intention of doing that originally. I wasn't researching, like I said, for the purpose of journalism. I was just doing it for myself as, as a father. Um, but the thing is, is that once I had that knowledge, once I understood what was happening and I saw how people were being deceived and how they were being lied to um, about the safety and eff- effectiveness of vaccines on the CDC schedule, I just couldn't keep that knowledge to myself. I had to say something about it. I had to speak out about it. And I had to share this knowledge with other people. Um, and that really led to me uh, eventually, uh, you know, I used to publish, publish foreign policy journal. I think I started that in 2008. Um, I had to make the decision, I think it was t- 2020, to stop publishing that that because I had just, I had stopped writing about foreign policy issues altogether. My, my focus had become entirely um, public vaccine policies. And then of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns, um, just all of my energy and all of my, my focus became on just this fight for health freedom and you know, being able to make choices on our own without government coercion, without, you know, being, without these interventions, pharmaceutical interventions being forced upon us. Um, uh, you know, th- we really need to be able to make our own health choices. And th- there's so much corruption. The entire scientific establishment, you know, if you look at f- where the funding comes from, there's there's so much corruption. And people have this idea that, you know, I mean, if you read the media, it, they, they call people who criticize public vaccine policies anti-vaxxers. And anti-vaxxer is equated with conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. Um, And in some people's minds, it it requires a conspiracy theory to to explain how it can be that, you know, the entire public health establishment can get it so wrong. Um, But really, no conspiracy is really required at all. It's just you you look at systems and you look at the institutionalized biases that exist. Uh, Again, in the scientific community, you look at where the funding is coming from. It's the pharmaceutical companies or it's the government. And of course, the government has has an incentive to fund scientists who produce the type of research and draw the types of conclusions that align with the the existing policies. Right. So there's just all of these institutionalized uh, biases uh, and and confirmation bias. If you look at individuals, how can it be that doctors, you know, uh, are so misinformed and and misinform their patients um, and they have a confirmation bias. I wrote a book called the war on informed consent, the persecution of Dr. Paul Thomas by the Oregon Medical Board, and, and he, uh, Dr. Paul Thomas, um, he was he had his license suspended by the Oregon Medical Medical Board um, for essentially for not keeping up high vaccine uptake in his practice, and for sure. uh, respecting parents' right to informed consent. And of course, the the medical board had all these pretexts, false pretexts for why they suspended his license, but they're demonstrably false. My book goes into that. But um, point being that I want to get to here is that he he was a type of unique, rare individual who started out practicing medicine the way he was taught, you know, vaccinating according to the CDC schedule, recommending parents follow the schedule. Um, But he was one of those rare individuals who was willing to ask himself the question is what I'm doing instead of helping these children, is it causing harm? And he was sincere about asking that question, and he honestly wanted to seek, find an answer to it. He started doing his own research, um, came to the conclusion that he couldn't go on with business as usual, left his group practice to open his own clinic, uh, founded on the principle of uh, respecting parents' right to make their own informed choices. Um, and so he's kind of a rare individual who was willing to kind of overcome his own confirmation biases. But I think most most people, you know, they'll accept information that aligns with their beliefs, Um, In their lifestyle, you know, people might have good, good jobs with good income and they don't want to they don't want to risk that they don't want to risk their careers. Um, And so overcoming confirmation bias is is a really big challenge. Uh, And, you know, I think well, all let, of let me cut in there yeah.
0: what what you just laid out though I, I, perhaps on I'm going to assume unintentionally like you you laid out this parallel path of your journey and then you highlighted the, the doctor which by the way I will definitely put the link to the book in the show notes um people could should check that out but you talked about how once you had this information as a journalist you felt like the integrity and and honesty in you was such that I have to focus on this and have to share this and the same with the, Dr. Thomas in the sense that like you're you're in one position and you have this opinion but you remain open to new evidence at all times including I'm sure you right now and him right now and you, I, I enjoyed hearing that that you just laid out parallel tracks of, of uh, as role models of what people can do because people ask all the time how do we fight back what do we do Well, our first step is is to What you just said is to battle that confirmation bias, to always be questioning yourself. And then I'm not here to tell somebody whether or not they should, how big of a risk they should take because I can't speak to their personal situation, but if it is at all possible, like you did, where you just said, I'm going to shut down the, the Foreign Policy policy Journal, which obviously was a passion of yours. But you're like, no, this is just too important. And I, I have these set of skills, and now I'm going to aim them in this direction. And obviously, you've done an incredible job at that. So um, I just want to make sure that, that I want to go on record just saying that it's incredibly admirable and and dripping with integrity what you've done and then you highlight someone like Paul Thomas and I think there's more people out there like that than we realize and I certainly... I, when you were talking about him with the medical board, I was thinking of Dr. Meryl Nass, who I've gotten to know since the pandemic and got to interview her a couple of times. And, and you know, she says that it's harder for the younger doctors and it, it, they, it's, this is a tough decision to put your entire career at risk. But there comes a point where you're just like the, the stakes are too high. You have to you have to follow your heart and, and turn this into a mission in which you clearly have done.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, and it, it's, it really is about, they make it in the mainstream media like to portray it as either pro or anti-vaccine. Um, and I of course reject the, you know, it's a derogatory label, the label anti-vaxxer, right. Um, and, and I'm not, I don't consider myself anti-vaccine. What I'm anti is I'm, I'm, I'm against, I'm opposed to the systematic violations of the right to informed consent that occur as a result of government policies, So it's the policies that I criticize, you know, whether other people choose to vaccinate their children or not, that's, that's, you know, I have no opinion about that. That's their choice to make. I just want them to make an informed choice and, and really look at it as an individualized risk benefit analysis, because every individual is different. Every child's different. Every child has a different risk of the disease that the vaccine is intended to protect against. And every child has a different risk of being injured by the vaccine so this idea that these government bureaucrats can make a uh, make a determination about the, uh, you know, and do a risk-benefit analysis for the entire childhood population without any of the knowledge necessary required to be able to make a meaningful risk-benefit analysis for the individual is on its face logically ludicrous. It's insane that, that you know, that this is the way policy is, this is the way that the decision is made. And it's not just, you know, people think about violations of informed consent, and the first thing they think of is the school mandates, you know, and the the idea that to go to school, uh, you have to have these vaccines. And, of course, there's, you know, there's assaults on states that have uh, non-medical exemptions, and there's a big movement to eliminate non-medical exemptions, to be able to force, to to have more coercion and more pressure on parents Mm. to vaccinate according to the CDC schedule. But it's not just about the mandates, It's the it's the medical establishment itself where even if you homeschool like we do, there is still coercion Uh, and and it's increasingly, you know, pressures not just being placed on the parents, but on the doctors where doctors are, are being pressured to, you know, you have to keep up a certain vaccination rate in your clinic. And if you don't. You know, if you write medical wow. exemptions, or if you, uh, you know, if you just don't keep up the high vaccine uptake in your clinic, your license is going to be threatened. Um, your career is going to be threatened. Um, we we were expelled uh, our a pediatric practice where we had established our son. You know, we had a PCP there, a primary care physician for him, um, and and we were expelled from that practice ultimately after it changed. Uh, I think it was a new owner or something, <clears throat> and uh, we we were sent a letter saying that since we declined to vaccinate according to the CDC schedule, we were no longer welcome at their clinic. Wow. Uh, And Um, I wrote, I wrote a a letter back to those that you can find on my website. But um, the point being uh, that, you know, it's the, the the government policies um, including, you know, apart from the school mandate mandates, there's systematic violation of the right to informed consent happening. So that informed uh-huh. consent doesn't happen in this country. Um, and even pe- when people make a choice, you know, and they think they're making a choice on their own. Yes, I, I want to get get my child vaccinated or I want to accept this vaccine for myself. Um, and they think they're making an informed choice. But the problem is that they've been disinformed and they've been lied to. You look, think about the COVID-19 vaccines and yes. how they were sold to the public on the basis of lies demonstrable, provable lies. We were told initially, if we remember, and we forget about the gaslighting that's happening to us with the fact checkers trying to deny reality. If we, we all have the memory going back of how they were sold to the public on the grounds that the vaccines were going to be the path out of the pandemic because two doses would, would confer durable sterilizing immunity, immunity that would prevent infection and transmission and, and confer herd immunity and that would end the pandemic. That's how they were sold to the public, yep. which of course was a lie. Um, and so, but this is not, and the, the, the great thing about, you know, there's a lot of positive outcomes of, of the pandemic. And one of them is just this mass awakening that has occurred where there really has been a dramatic shift from pre-pandemic to to now, which I would consider post-pandemic. I mean, the virus is endemic now at this point. I don't know why they're continuing to call it a pandemic, but setting that aside you know, pre, I'll use the terms pre and post pandemic, um, just a huge dramatic shift. Like, for example, you know, before the pandemic, if you were to criticize uh, the CDC for being untrustworthy, you were considered a conspiracy theorist. Yep. I mean, that idea, you know, that calling the CDC's credibility and trustworthiness into question was, it just was unheard of in the mainstream narrative. Now you have, it's, it's open for conversation in the, in the mainstream media, you know, this, this matter of the CDC's trustworthiness. Yeah um, I, let me let me cut in there because
0: I I just think you really nailed something that's so important for people to remember here though, is that what there's there seems to be, even amongst the most skeptical people, far too many of them who are perceiving the situation as something new. This is like the C D C almost like they just started Acting like this in March of 2020, or the mm-hmm. NIH or the WHO, and you laid out that this is a systemic problem that's been around for the longest time, and that that it's set up that you can't have informed consent even when you think you can, because if I had a dollar for every person who got the COVID jab but said to me straight faced, "I did my research and I'm happy with this decision," now I'm not criticize, I'm not judging and criticizing them, but as you said, the 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 way it was set up, there was no research to be done. And if you look at it realistically, the people who got the jab were are the research because there are no long-term studies. They are the research. And for you to, to have this reminder that this is not new and that we don't need to go back to the days when the CDC was honest, we need to push forward to a day where we have a whole different type of system protecting us from this scientific fraud. So I before I... I'm gonna ask you a question now that I know you could you could talk authoritatively on for hours, but I don't wanna to go too quickly into COVID because I wanted I, I having the opportunity to talk to you and you know so much about vaccines and you sent me this article, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the topic of autism and quote something you said. So you, this is from an article you wrote. The hypothesis that vaccinating children, according to the CDC schedule, can contribute to the development of autism in susceptible children has not been falsified. In truth, not only has the hypothesis not been falsified, but the government refuses to do the types of studies that would be required to truly test the hypothesis. And moreover, the government has acknowledged that, In genetically susceptible children, vaccines can cause brain damage, manifesting as symptoms of autism. Meanwhile, the CDC's own body of research has been designed to not find an association. So again, I know you could go into deep, you could speak for hours authoritatively, and that's why I hope people will go to your site and read your books. But before we dive deeply into COVID, can you just briefly elaborate on that and offer any insights insights? into how parents who are listening should never just automatically trust the medical authorities, including the CDC.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the the CDC makes this claim, they have a positive claim that vaccines do not cause autism. So to make that positive claim is to say that the hypothesis that vaccines can cause autism or contribute to the development of autism um, has been tested and, and and falsified. I mean, this is what the scientific method is, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you come up with a hypothesis, You it has to be testable, it has to be falsifiable, um, and you and you design studies to test the hypothesis. Um, and, you know, it, it's, if you consider just the fact that, you know, anytime you have an observational study, a study, you know, it's not a randomized controlled trial, it's, it's just looking at like population data. Uh, so you have this type of study, and you're looking at vaccines. And anytime an observational study um, finds vaccines to be associated with some harm, we're always reminded, well, uh, just a, a correlation doesn't necessarily equate to causation. Of course, we're reminded this. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow when observational studies find no association, somehow this is treated as proof mm-hmm. uh, you know that, that the hypothesis has been falsified. But there's both You know, you can have false positive and false negative findings. And so you have to look at the methodologies of these studies. Um, And one of the biggest problems is that uh, almost none of them actually considered the possibility of susceptible subpopulations. They treat all children as though they're at equal risk. You know, the hypothesis being that every child is at equal risk of um, the, the vaccine causing autism, which is just completely untrue. It's not what anyone thinks. Um, and so they just start off with this false premise. Um, and so by not considering the possibility of susceptible p- subpopulations, and there could be susceptibilities that could be genetic in nature, uh, environmentally caused susceptibilities, you know, the children who are exposed to more heavy metals, for example, might be at higher risk. Um, premature babies might be at higher risk. There's, there's all kinds of risk factors that can be involved, um, and so to, to not acknowledge that there could be susceptible subpopulations, is just you're asking the wrong question right up at the bat, and you're setting the study up to not find an association. Um, and so that's the, that's the first problem. Almost none of the studies were actually designed to, uh, to consider the possibility of susceptible subpopulations. And this has been acknowledged in the interview uh, with the, the great journalist uh, Cheryl Atkinson, um the head of the CDC's Office of uh, Immunization Safety, Frank Stefano, acknowledged in, in an interview with her some years back that yeah, it, it, it is possible that vaccines might contribute to the development of autism in in susceptible uh, subpopulations. The problem is we don't know who those children might be. Mm. And so you'd think the CDC would be, would um, you know conduct studies to try to figure out like what are the risk factors for vaccine injuries. <laughs> Um, but, you but you know, this, this research is non-existent, which tells us a lot. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and then you do have, um, there has been claims, the media claiming that, the, that there's two studies <clears throat> that they claim actually looked at the possibility of, of uh, genetic susceptibility. Uh, but it's interesting if you actually go and read those studies. So the first one was in 2015 by Jane et al., Um, I believe it was new England journal of medicine uh, might've been JAMA. I don't, I don't recall Um, uh, the journal of the American medical association. Uh, And, and what they did is they looked at uh, autism among children um, who had older siblings with autism. And so that was how they defined genetic susceptibility. They considered, okay, if, if a child has an older uh, sibling that was diagnosed with autism, And that that sibling, you know, the younger child is also considered at at risk due to genetic susceptibility, which makes sense. Um, And so the authors actually did conclude that they, you know, they they found this, that they they claimed that their findings were evidence of no association uh, between the MMR vaccine and development of autism. But the problem is that that's not the logical conclusion from their findings, because what they actually found was that children who had parents or children who had siblings with with autism were less likely to receive the MMR vaccine. And so you have this, what's called a, sometimes called a healthy user bias. It's a type of selection bias. And of course, all observational studies are susceptible, you know, they're prone to selection biases, which is why the randomized placebo controlled trials are considered the gold standard of, of, you know, evidence of causation. Um, but anyhow, what the, the actual conclusion that we should draw from this study is that, uh, you know, that children who are at higher risk of autism are pooled into the unvaccinated cohort, whereas children who are at lower risk of developing autism are pooled into the vaccinated cohort. And so we have to consider that selection bias and that selection bias has to be controlled for. So the proper conclusion to draw from the study is further research is needed that controls for this healthy user bias that was identified. But instead, they draw the conclusion that oh, look, we didn't find an association. So you know that that puts the the nail in the coffin on, on the hypothesis. But just you, it, the study did not falsify the hypothesis. Um, and then, of course, the second study was a big one out of Denmark um, that also claimed to have. Um, you know, consider the, the possibility of susceptible, genetically susceptible subpopulations, but they actually excluded uh, right off the bat um, children who had conditions that placed them at higher risk of autism. So in other words, they were treating these conditions as competing hypotheses rather as potential cofactors. Mm-hmm. So it might not be just the vaccines that, that trigger the autism. It might be they have, you know, one of these conditions plus vaccination, but they treat them as competing hypotheses and exclude those children. Um, so, you know, if you just, Without, you know, going on for too long about this, you know, if you just look at the, the methodologies of the studies, um, the hypothesis has never really been truly tested. Um, the studies, essentially, you could argue that the studies are designed to not find an association. Mm. Um, and, of course, it should be no surprise that they don't. Um, and the types of studies that, that would really be required, you know, essentially what parents have been demanding is a study of health outcomes. And I say health outcomes, I mean, all health outcomes, you know, asthma, allergies, autoimmune diseases, cancers. So health outcomes, mortality is a big one, all cause mortality between uh, children who receive the CDC schedule, fully vaccinated children, according to the schedule and completely unvaccinated children. And the, the public health agencies have been absolutely adamant about not doing that type of study, whether, a, whether a randomized controlled trial or even just using uh, like one of their databases, like the, the vaccine safety database to, to do one of these observational type studies, they won't do it. So let me ask you like you
0: just outlined it. Thank you. First of all, because you just outlined that so clearly. <laughs> um, for, I know all you can do is speculate, but what the people doing these studies, how are they not aware of this clear flaw in their work? And based and since you can literally discuss the two, counting fingers on one hand, the two studies that we can point to as being even just connected to one health outcome, autism. So it just is screaming for more research and covering more health outcomes, as you said. So is it it's like my instinct is immediately say, well, who's funding those studies? And Big Pharma squashes this and there's no, they they know that if we, if they did more studies, they could get um, results that would bring the whole house of cards down. Or is it possible that the people doing those original studies are somehow just unaware of how they set it up to fail. I mean, that sounds so naive to even ask you, but I'm just curious to to see when you look at those studies, what are you thinking of how did this happen and why aren't we doing more research? What answers do you come up with?
1: I think a lot of it has to do with just the funding, Um, you know, scientists, researchers uh, want to get the funding that, that enables them to, to persist in their careers uh, and if you again, if you look at the like the, the Denmark Denmark study, for example, was funded by um, uh, organizations there. In fact, the, I forget the name of the the organization, but it's actually responsible for the Danish um, like vaccine distribution. Um, and so, you know, they had connections to pharmaceutical companies, uh, the, the Danish health uh, public health agencies, which of course is a conflict of interest because, of course. Of course, just like the CDC would, has an incentive to fund studies that are going to support its policies. Same thing with you know, the Danish health agencies. Um And so, I, you know, a lot of it is, I think, I think it's there's a willful blindness. Mm. I think, I think a, a lot of researchers kind of fall for their own propaganda. um, The same way a lot of journalists buy into their own propaganda and the same way politicians buy into their own propaganda. I think that explains a lot of it. I don't, I don't think they have malicious intent, but the other thing is, is, you know, a lot of times they have findings that actually don't support, um, you know, their conclusions, but, but they have to, they have to say certain things, you know, every time you read a study about vaccines, that, that, that is like critical in some way of vaccines, you know, maybe it finds an association between vaccines and some harm, for example. Um, you, you know, it's like the authors always feel obligated to preface their, their paper, by saying what great inventions vaccines are and how mm. wonderful they are for humanity. But, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> and just the fact that they, they, they feel compelled to do that. It's like, it's like they know they're not going to get published if they don't sing high praises of vaccines and, and couch their conclusions. And and a lot of times, this is one of the things, a lot of the times the conclusions that are drawn are not actually supported by the findings or are actually contradicted by their own findings. And yet they draw these conclusions that are of course, um, you know, singing the praises of <laughs> yeah. of vaccines um, when, when their own data and their own findings don't actually support that. So um, yeah, it's a great question. You know, how, how do we explain that? I, I I tend to try to assume the best of people. And I, I think, you know, I don't always just assume malicious intent uh, and that they're just deliberately being deceptive. Um, although that, of course, that does occur. Um, but I think it's more, you know, there's the psychology of it that, that like we discussed earlier, the confirmation biases, the will, you know, people willfully blind themselves and they really convince themselves um, of their own beliefs. Uh, and so they kind of just kind of turn a blind eye to, you know, they don't connect the dots. Yeah. Even their dots are right in front of them, but they just refuse to connect them.
0: Yeah. I, I, I've equated it in the past what like um, when here in New York city and uh, 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 NYPD cop shoot someone, then there's always some internal investigation that almost always absolves him of any crime. And it's it's become like laughable at this point, where of course, like if you ask a group of people who work for the NYPD whether or not this other person who works for the NYPD is a criminal, the odds are like even just psychologically, like you said, what even let's say take a step back and say, let's get away from the malicious intent. Um, the odds are their findings are going to match what they, what their expectations might've been, you know, and then, and then like, like when you get groups like the CIA, you know, examining, investigating itself, it's, it's like, we we laugh at that, but yet somehow, when we hear a phrase like "peer reviewed," we don't assign the same possibility that people within this same field who have been influenced from the day they entered medical school to a certain mindset. Like you said, they, this need to say, "Let me first say, vaccines save lives," but like, just the need to say that speaks volumes as to how the system works, and it's it just. I I feel like that could be an entry point for people who fall into the mainstream as to trying to get someone to ask questions as opposed to going right to um showing them one of the documentaries of of people suffering from the covid jabs it's just like pointing out that by definition when you get a group of people in the same in the same uh, profession they have expectations that are, as to what they're going to find and then when they find that, it, it, we we need we need to be in a position where we are wise enough to question it, but also have means by which to call it into question and have public hearings, et cetera, from there.
1: Yeah, it really is a challenge to be able to kind of see through the propaganda and, in you know, what, what is the truth? What can you believe? There's so much conflicting information. Um, but we just – I think really, the really most important thing is just to maintain a healthy skepticism. Yeah, yeah, you, know, you know, and uh, and just because you hear it from the CDC and the FDA and and you, from your doctor and from your insurance company, um, you know, I mean, I, I've written articles exposing these uh, de- deceptions and lies and outright outright falsehoods. You know, uh, that I get, like, for example, one of the local um, health care agencies up here, McLaren, uh, also Munson Medical up here in Michigan. Uh, putting out information—it's just sheer propaganda, <laughs> you know—and it's not accurate information. In fact, it's it's misinformative, um, and, and so just because you're hearing it, you know these you're, these are supposed to be the authorities, right? Um, but you really have to question authorities and just not trust um, the so-called experts and the so-called authorities, and you have to become your own expert. Um, and it, that's the challenge of it because it takes time to do your own research to read up on things. Um, and so it's just, it is really about developing savvy news um, media consumerism skills. And that's just something we all need to develop and, and spend yeah. the time to develop those skills to be able to um, see the red flags of, you know, oh, that's, that's, that should call, call into, um, that, that should uh, raise my skepticism when, it, when you read, you know, some, there's, there's certain propaganda devices, for example, that you should, you can learn to spot and recognize. Uh, when you see those things, it's a red flag, and so you you know, okay, well, I should do a little more research into that and find out what the truth is. So it's just a skill that that we all have to develop, I think.
0: I I, I agree. I mean, and you're you're a role model of that in terms of of being able to to develop the skill and then apply it where you see necessary, but always keeping your mind open. Which brings me, as we, I feel like we could just keep talking, but the time is passing. here. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about the COVID injection. I could only imagine. That when March 2020 rolled around and the words warp speed first uh, be- reached the uh, public dialogue, that you felt like you like you talked about um, first examining vaccines ten years prior to that. So it was it was as if you had been prepared for this moment for years. And yes. So what did it what did it feel like, and what was it like trying to get that word out? Like, hey, they're just a, they're going to do, they're going to dig deep into their playbook and they're going to use these propaganda tools and these medical research tools. And then they're going to come out with this. I mean, you, you knew probably what they were going to do before they did it, but what was it like to know that in advance and to try Mm -hmm. and share that, that information?
1: Yeah. In fact, back, back March and April of 2020, I was speaking out. I was, I mean, I was saying that the end game of the lockdowns is coerced mass vaccination. Mm -hmm. I was saying that back in March and April of 2020, I mean, I foresaw that and it wasn't you know I wasn't looking into a crystal ball it's just because i was so familiar with the the, the propaganda techniques and then when um what actually kind of <laughs> i wasn't really paying too much attention to the outbreak you know in, in january early february we had heard about this new virus come in you know in this outbreak in wuhan i was actually in taiwan during the the original the sars outbreak 2002 2003 and I remember like being the only person on the Mass Rapid Transit system there, like not wearing a mask, because I just thought <laughs> there was a bunch of hype and, and propaganda. And I wasn't didn't, I wasn't concerned about it. Um, and I I, I just kind of had the same expectation for um, uh, for for SARS-CoV-2. Um, of course it turned out to be quite a different virus, a lot more transmissible, um, a lot more contagious. But uh, you know, so I was kind of just not really paying too much attention to it at first. Um, But what really kind of woke me up to like, okay I need to really start like focusing on this now was when the World Health Organization came out and pointed to the uh, extreme authoritarian lockdowns in China as a role model for other countries. Mm. And at that point, I said, oh, wow, this is this is going to be bad. Like they're really going to start they're going to assume these authorities and these powers and they're going to crack down on these populations and implement these strict authoritarian measures. Uh, And so that was the point probably about mid-February. I really just started kind of dropped everything else I was working on and started researching this new virus. Um, So by the time March rolled around and the lockdowns were implemented, of course I was speaking out against them and I was pointing out how they were sold to the public again, uh, on the basis of a a lie. It was a deception because if you remember, we were told, remember remember two weeks to flatten the curve. (laughs) Yeah. which was a deception because if you look at the paper, the Imperial college paper that had that, that modeling uh, study <clears throat> that was the impetus, you know, for the, that was the, the justification for in the UK in the U S for the lockdowns and other governments as well. Of course they modeled, you know, these, you know, without the lockdown measures, these massive deaths. Um, and the thing is, you know, so we were told like one part of that paper that they said, well, if, if we, if we have these lockdowns, we can, um, we can flatten the curve, meaning to prevent the hospitals from being overwhelmed, which would cause excess deaths due to people not getting care they needed. So the idea was just to kind of slow the spread enough to, for the hospitals to be able to ramp up you know, their supplies and their capacity um, to be able to handle you know, the, the caseloads. That was the idea. The idea was never to reduce deaths from COVID-19. The area under the curve <laughs> was the same. It was just to prevent it from being, uh, it was to spread it out over time. So to prevent the the hospitals from being overwhelmed. That was the idea. That, but if you look at the paper, and that was what the media reported. We just need to flatten the curve for two weeks and then we can go back to normal and, and you know, everyone can, can, can go on with their lives. But uh, that, that was a deception right from the beginning. Because if you actually go and you read that paper, they talked about how they couldn't lift the lockdowns once they were implemented. And they would need to, to maintain these lockdown measures until a vaccine could be developed. And they anticipated that a vaccine could be developed. I forget the timeline, but I think it was something like 18 months. Yeah. Uh, you know, a very long time for, for these you know, devastatingly harmful shutdowns to be in place. And right in there, they say they don't consider the, the, like the economic costs of, of the lockdowns that they advocated well, how can you advocate a policy without considering the harms it was, that it would cause? Anthony Fauci said the same thing. It wasn't his job to consider the economic harms of the lockdowns that he advocated. I mean, it's just insanity. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I actually put out a video back in a, early April 2020 talking about how lockdowns were implemented on the basis of uh, on a false pretext. It was they were never intended to be temporary. They're always intended to be maintained indefinitely until um, they could be used to coerce a vaccine on the population, which is exactly what happened. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, ca- I called that back in March, April of, of 2020, um, just because I was well enough aware, like you said, I was—I I had already spent a decade researching these types of topics and these types of issues to be able to, to have that foresight.
0: Wow. Uh, of,
1: of how they would react. I just, I instinctively knew how the government... Of, policymakers would react and how they would use that as a pretext to try to assume more authorities and more powers. Um, Because of course, politicians are always seeking ever greater power and control over the population.
0: Oh yeah. They're they're not looking to surrender any of that power and, and then constantly adding to it, which I guess to wrap up um, before you tell people where they can find this information and I will include it all in the show notes for the record. um, When, when people when people talk to you, that kind of get what you're saying and ask you, well, how do we stop this and how do we uh, <clears throat> prevent it from leading into other forms of tyranny, digital ID, etc.? What what gives you any sense of hope or optimism? And what you know, I feel like these powers that shouldn't be have have got drunk with power and overplayed their hand, and that's gonna and they didn't expect this many people. Like you called it a, an awakening. This this many people being aware and becoming aware and uniting across formal lines like left and right. So I feel like they overplayed their hand. Do you agree with that? And what do you think? But what what do you suggest to listeners that they can do in the short term or the long term, in terms of, of challenging this tyranny and fraud before it gets even more deeply embedded?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree that they overplayed their hand. I don't think they anticipated how their extremism was going to uh, result in this kind of mass awakening of much of the population. Of course, we have a long way to go, but there's certainly reason for optimism uh, just in terms of, you know, just public opinion polls showing, uh, you know, decrease. You know, there's much more, uh, much greater proportion of the population now uh, opposes mandatory vaccinations, You know, like I'm talking about childhood vaccines, right? Yep. Um, And so, you know, there's these types of awakenings that have happened. Just a massive sudden shift. It used to be kind of, you know, there was kind of a slow awakening happening pre-pandemic, like I I mentioned. But um, there was kind of a a very dramatic, noticeable shift as a result of them overplaying their hand. So, yeah, absolutely agree with that. Um, So that's, again, it's just one of the benefits of, of what's happened, despite all the the hardships and obstacles and and the authoritarianism and and everything else that we've had to endure, um, some positive benefits uh, have come out of it. As for what we can do, you know, I just really think the most important thing is just to educate ourselves. And then we have to be able to have the confidence to kind of speak up and speak out because Mm -hmm. if we just maintain our silence. And I know it's tricky. And, you know, again, like you mentioned earlier, I can't judge other people for, if they choose not not to speak out, because I don't know their circumstances, everyone has a different personal situation. Um, but to the best of our ability, I think we just need to try to spread the knowledge and and help awaken others, because we just need to reach uh, a, a, a you know a critical level um, where a, a paradigm shift can be ushered in, and we just need, kind of need to reach that critical mass of like awakened citizenry for certain policies to become unfeasible you know there has to be it has to become politically infeasible for them to ever implement these types of lockdowns again for example
0: i concur and i will say to the listeners a step in that direction a step of getting that self-education and the motivation to share it is to check out jeremy's work so could you could you just tell people Um, your website and the free ebook and the uh, email list and the newsletter and just give them the basics. And trust me, I will include all of it in, I'll put all your social media and everything in the show notes so people can track you down. But can you just focus on the website, the ebook and the the newsletter uh, email?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, My website is jeremyrhammond.com. And if you go there, pretty much any page of the site, you'll find an opt-in form to sign up for my newsletters, my free newsletters. Um, I'll also, uh, send you a free ebook when you do that. um, Currently, the free ebook that I'm offering is uh, the FDA COVID-19 vaccines and scientific fraud, which details um, how the FDA relied on on outright scientific fraud for the authorization of COVID-19 vaccines for younger children. Uh, gets into a lot of details about uh, the detrimental effects of the vaccines on the immune system, the, something called original antigenic sin in particular, I did discuss in there. So you get that free ebook. Right. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, and also uh, you can check out my books. I've got the war on informed consent also on foreign policy matters. My big book, biggest book is obstacle to peace, the U S role in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, I'm also working. You'll be interested to learn this. Mikizia, you mentioned um, that you, you kind of, you were reading the turtles all the way down, I, I guess. I just yes. saw my blurb in there. Yes. Um, and so I actually have been collaborating with the authors of that book to make that book available to people who don't want to prefer not to buy it from Amazon. Uh, and so you can buy that book also directly from me on my website. So check out Fantastic. that book. definitely. Yeah. It's a great book as well uh, as my own. Um, so, yeah, yeah, head to JeremyRHammond.com and just sign up for my newsletter.
0: And, and the ebook that you're giving away, the current one, let me just say to the listeners, this isn't like a free ebook that's like 12 pages long. It's like 120 pages. Like this is a detailed, researched book that you're getting for free simply by signing up for a free email. So it is by just these steps to take right now as you're listening to this will just exponentially increase the amount of knowledge you have about this scientific fraud that's being imposed on us and stuff that you can share immediately. So I, I highly recommend jeremy's site and jeremy I, I really appreciate i i, I feel like we could we didn't get to talk about censorship i wanted to talk about your guitar playing but we're running out of time so let's let's make sure we do this again because i learned a lot listening to you i absolutely loved reconnecting with you after all these years and i don't want this and i don't want a disconnect to happen now so let's stay in touch and i would love to have you back on the show in the relatively near f- future
1: That would be great. Absolutely, yeah. It's great to reconnect. I'm really happy that uh, that we've we found each other again.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for all the work you do. All the best with your family, and uh, thank you for making time to do this. I, I really, really appreciate it. You bet. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber. For just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial and it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber. And please spread the word. And while you're at it, please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up. People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is. And now it's time for you to join the team. So once again, thank you in advance. And let's get back to the show. It was so great to reconnect with Jeremy, but there was a bittersweet element to it, not related to him, but due to ultimately propaganda. Because over the past three years for sure, but even a little bit before that, so many of my other former blog friends, and we used to call ourselves the Expendables, and this was before the Stallone movie, so many of them have rejected me. Um, primarily it's been during the pandemic years related to my exposing the truth about that situation. At least one of them just ghosted me because he didn't like the way I spoke about activism. And there at, again, at least one, if not more, is um, just ditched me because they disagreed with my perception on trans theory and tran- the trans agenda. So all of that adds up to hurt almost as much as the people who have stopped donating to my project, Helping Homeless Women NYC. It seems my opinions trigger them. So what what do they do? They take it out on vulnerable women. So all of this negativity, though, adds up to make it doubly positive to reconnect with Jeremy. Because we're on the same wavelength in so many ways, but I also know that I can disagree with him and we won't take it personally. So in 2023, can we each do our part to make that the new normal? And to do so, don't miss any opportunity to model such behavior. And that requires you to keep your guard up.